Amen. Lord, it truly is all about you. Lord, there's nothing else. There's no one else. There's nowhere else we can turn. There's no one else who, who loves us enough to suffer and die that we might have eternal life. There's no other God. There's no other hope. There's no other place where joy originates. So, Father, we just thank you that the wall has been broken down, that we can draw near to you, that we can know our God in a personal and an intimate way. Father, I pray as we go to your word right now that you'd be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us this morning. I pray, Lord, for the sake of your people that you would use this marred and imperfect vessel that you might be glorified. Lord, we're desperate for you. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. I want to encourage you to read Joshua chapter 8 and join us on Wednesday night. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Uh, Pastor Bill mentioned that you guys have uh, some invitations in your bulletin. Right? Did you find those? Okay. Are we awake this morning? I got a napping crowd. Every time I pray about getting softer chairs, I think, you know, maybe not a good idea. Might lose everyone. I might be up here telling bedtime stories instead of preaching the Bible. All right, I'm kidding, okay? In three and a half weeks, on December 7th, we have a ministry called Pottersfield Ministry that's going to be here. And we've made over 2,000 of these invitations. And I want to say this first. If you're not going to use them, please leave them on the back table because we want to use them. We want to give them to people. When I was a youth pastor in San Jose, we did something similar called Life 2000. And we used Pottersfield Ministry as one of the main people that came to minister that day. We'd have kids right on the back of the invitation, people that they wanted to see come, and they'd start praying for them by name, and then they would go and invite them. You know what? God answers those prayers. And what I always loved is we'd end up having usually around 2,000 teenagers show up. And so, you know what? I want to encourage us as a church that we need to make sure that we're not just having an impact on each other inside of these walls, but that we're having an impact on Santa Cruz County outside of these walls. Amen? You know what, the people in Santa Cruz need Jesus or what? There's no doubt about it. And so I want to encourage you, be praying, take these invitations. Now it sounds bizarre, the guy makes a pot and shares the gospel. He doesn't smoke pot and share the gospel, he makes a pot and shares the gospel, alright? Now, I I want to tell you something, I've seen this 15 times, I weep every time. And it's not just for unbelievers, but it's for those who already know the Lord. It will be a great encouragement to you. So again, we should be inviting people to church all the time, but you know what, sometimes a special event like this gets us to, you know, reach out to somebody who maybe, maybe wouldn't normally come to church on a regular day. Calvary Chapel Aptos is going to be joining us that night. I'm looking forward to it. Be praying for that. Be praying that the kingdom would be added to on the night of December 7th, amen? That people will come to know Christ, that their eternity would be changed. That's why we're here. That's the Great Commission. Well, Ephesians chapter 3. Let me briefly catch you up. So far in our study of Paul's letter to the Ephesian believers, this is a letter written by Paul. Where is he while he's writing this letter? He's sitting where? In prison. And as he's sitting in prison, he's writing a letter to a church filled with people in an area that he had, he had planted the church himself. He had gone there on his third missionary journey. His vocal Uh, statements about the false gods that were going on in this city, this city of great wealth, a city filled with a 
sexual immorality to city filled with great idolatry. When he spoke out against it, he caused a riot. A riot to such an extent that, again, the people started to cry out, Great is the goddess Diana for two hours straight. While another group of people came and burned their idols and their witchcraft books and started to serve the true and living God. Well, it's been about 10 years now that Paul's been gone, and the word has come back to him that, again, the, the children of the Lord living in Ephesus, that many of them were being turned away by the riches of this world yet again. They were being tempted by the sexual immorality and the idolatry that was all around them. And you know what? God desires that we be in the world, but not of the world. That we not be a reflection of the world, but we be a reflection of the Lord to the world. Amen? And so his heart was to write this letter back to exhort them, to remind them that their riches really were in Christ and not in the wealth of this world. That their position was in Christ and not lined up with the things of this world or the idols of this world. And so, so far in the first two chapters, what we've seen is our position in Christ and our riches in Christ. Now, when we looked at our Riches in Christ, remember we're blessed, chosen, adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven, enlightened, assured, right? All of those things, given an inheritance, and all of those things are riches that we have in Christ. And he's telling them again that, look, the wealth of this world is fading, it's fleeting, it's passing away, but the riches you have in the Lord will endure forever. He then in chapter 2 goes on to tell them who we were outside of Christ and how we, who we are now in Christ. Outside of Christ... The text says that we were separated from God, that we were following Satan's lead, that we were ruled by the lust of the flesh and the desires of our mind, that by nature we were children under divine judgment, that we were hopeless, we were helpless, we were spiritually dead, and we were headed for destruction. Man, that's bad news. Amen? That's bad news. And that's where the world is apart from Christ. But praise God for chapter 2, verse 4, two words, but God. We were hopeless, we were helpless, we were headed for destruction, we were separated from Almighty God, but God, in His love and His grace and His mercy, He came and paid the price for us that sinful man could be restored back to holy God. So Ephesus, so far, this book of Ephesians, has been an encouragement as to our riches in Christ and our position in Christ. Now as we come to chapter 3 this morning, we're finishing off the first half, and it's important to note that the way this book is written, the first half talks about our position in Christ, and then next week we'll start looking at the practice of the Christian. The first half teaches us about what we are to believe, and the second half talks about how we are to behave. The first half talks about doctrinal truth, the second half about divine duty. The first half about the privileges of a Christian, and the second half about the responsibilities of a Christian. And you know what? That format ought to be alive in our lives, you guys. We shouldn't just study the Bible and take it all in and have it not impact our lives. we got to have chapters 1 through 3, learning what we believe and knowing what we believe, but it also ought to impact, impact how we behave. And so this is Paul's heart. As we come to chapter 3, he's finishing up talking to them about, again, the work that God has done, their position in Christ, and he's going to start to exhort them about how to behave. As we get to the end of the text this morning, he'll be praying for them that they'll be equipped to not only know what God's taught, but know how to live for him and be equipped to live a life set apart unto the Lord. Now it's interesting, I titled the message this morning, for those of you who take notes, The Mystery of Grace. 
the mystery of grace. And while the Jewish people, based upon the teaching of the Old Testament prophets, did indeed look forward to a coming Messiah, they didn't really grasp what the Messiah would do when he came. What did most of the Jews think the Messiah was going to do when he came? They thought he would wipe out the Romans. They thought the Messiah was going to come in and he was going to be a mighty warrior. They were looking for gladiator or, or braveheart or something, right? They were looking for somebody to come in with a sword in his hand and start wailing on the enemy. By the way, just to make sure you guys know, I didn't see either one of those movies because they were rated R, just in case anybody goes, Pastor Dave, braveheart. That's why I don't ever quote movies. See, it slipped out. Now, let me say this. They were looking for some kind of mighty conqueror instead of a suffering servant. And because they were looking for a mighty conqueror, they missed the suffering servant. Not realizing that he didn't come to conquer physically, but he came to conquer spiritually. And so they missed the Messiah because they were looking for the wrong type of a Messiah. They thought he would come to establish the kingdom. They didn't grasp their need for a redeemer or a suffering servant. That through his blood on the cross, they could be brought near to the Savior. Brought near to the Father. Even the apostles struggled. When Jesus was crucified, what did the apostles do? They ran away. They thought they lost. They thought they had missed out completely. Oh, we thought he was the one. And now he's dead. What are we going to do? They didn't realize what they thought was the greatest defeat was actually the greatest victory ever. And they were missing it because they were looking for the wrong type of the Messiah. The Messiah was to come to bring down, even destroy the Gentiles, they thought. Not to redeem them or cleanse them or adopt them. And even the early Christians struggled. Even after Jesus rose from the dead, many of the first, most of the first believers were all Jews. And many of them struggled that the Gentiles could even be saved. Remember, God had to have a vision for Peter to even start believing it. You remember that? Acts chapter 10, Peter's up on the rooftop, he's hungry, and God rolls down the, you know, the sheet, and in that sheet he sees all the unclean animals, and he says, rise, kill, and eat, and Peter's response was, not so, Lord. And you can never say not so and Lord in the same sentence, because <laughs> not so makes him not Lord, amen? And he says, what I've cleansed that no man call unclean, and right at that moment, Cornelius, a, a Gentile man, had sent some of his people to find Peter to hear the gospel, sent by the Lord, and knocks on the door, and Peter finally goes out, and, and we see Gentile Pentecost in Acts chapter 10. But it took a vision for even Peter, a man filled with the Holy Spirit, to grasp the fact that the gospel was not just for the Jews, but was for the Gentiles as well. And aren't you glad? Praise the Lord for that. The wall's been torn down as we saw last week, that middle wall of separation, and we can come near to God anywhere and any time and praise the Lord for that. So he's going to continue talking about that this morning. He's going to continue talking about the fact that the, this mystery that was struggled with for thousands of years. You know, the Galatians, those of you here for the studying Galatians, what was it all about? It was about Judaizers who came in and told the Gentile Christians they had to become Jews before they become Christians. This was still prevalent. And so as this letter's being written, he's letting them know, hey, there's a greater mystery that's been revealed through the Apostle Paul. The true depth of God's plan, that Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. So, for note takers, the mystery of God's grace. First point, we'll see the age of grace. Then we'll see the unity of grace. 
Then we'll see the gift of grace and then Paul's prayer in the light of God's grace. So the age of grace, the unity of grace, the gift of grace, and Paul's prayer in the light of God's grace. So let's begin in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3, looking at the mystery of grace, beginning with the age of grace. Verse 1, for this reason. For what reason? Well, again, you go back to the previous two chapters. For, the, for having boldly spoken the truth revealed in the first two chapters, that the Gentiles had equal access to salvation, that the middle wall had been torn down, that they'd been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, for that reason, what? I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. Why was Paul in prison? He was in prison for preaching the gospel, and most specifically, he was in prison because he was preaching the gospel to Gentiles. The Jews were upset that they accused him falsely of bringing a Gentile into the inner court. Remember I told you last week, there was a wall between the outer court and the inner court, and the Gentile proselytes and the women were in the outer court, and the Jewish men were in the inner court. And there was a sign that said that any Gentile that came into the inner court would be put to death. And they accused Paul of bringing a Gentile into the inner court, which didn't really even happen. But here's the thing. He really was bringing the Gentiles into the inner court because the wall had been broken down at the cross. There was no more separation between Jews and Greeks. There was no more in Gentiles. There was no more separation between men and women. And praise God, no more separation between God and man through the person of Jesus Christ. And so he's, the wall's been broken down and he's in prison because he shared the gospel. And I want you to notice something here, and I love this. He says, the prisoner of the Roman Empire. He says, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. You know why? I love Paul. And Paul just flat out rocks because Paul gets it. Here's Paul's heart. You know what? God is in control, and even though the Romans are the ones that are chained up to me at night so I don't get out of here, the only reason I'm in here is because God put me here. We need to get to the point in our walk with God that we realize that all things certainly do work together for good for those who trust in God and are called according to His purpose, that our God is in control, and that everything that comes our way when we're walking in obedience, hello, Paul was not in prison for dealing crack. Amen? (laughs) Paul was not in prison for being a mass murderer. You know, well, it's it's grace that God has me here for a reason. You know, no, you're in here because you were dealing crack. And sin has consequences. Amen? But in this case, when you're walking in the center of God's will, and, and you know, you're serving God, it doesn't mean you're walking in perfection, that's why we need to be saved. But the point is that you're seeking after God, and the consequences come. Okay, Lord, you knew. Did, does God know? Yes, He knows. And Paul says, I'm not a prisoner of the Roman Empire, because if the Lord wants me out of here, I'm out of here tomorrow. And if the Lord doesn't want me to leave, they can open up all the gates, and I won't be able to. So, you know what, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm latched to him. He sees himself as a prisoner, not of Rome, but of the Lord. He knew that Jesus was the Lord of his life, not the Roman government. And again, it was the Lord who had him there. You know what I love about about Paul? In this case, it was kind of a, a different situation in that he had freedom. He was kind of under house arrest. 
But there were guards that were there during the day to make sure he didn't escape. And then at night, they would chain a guard to him so he didn't slip out in the middle of the night. Can you imagine what Paul might have to say to you if you were chained to him for eight hours? (laughs) Paul's going, another divine appointment. Let me tell you about Jesus, you know? It's kind of like when I get to sit next to somebody on a 17-hour plane flight. I pray for those people for weeks on end, and I love it because I'm in the aisle, and that means they're not, and so they can't got, they got to get up to get around me. It's just great. Captive audience. You know, I've been praying for you for a month. What? And you know what? Jesus loves, and that's the Apostle Paul, divine appointment, a prisoner of Christ. I'm here for a reason, and you know what? Praise God that I'm here. Not murmuring, not moaning, not complaining, not griping against God, but saying, Lord, you have me here for a reason. You know what, guys? We don't work for our boss, we work for the Lord. We don't, you know, work for the government, we work for God. And everything we do, we honor the Lord above all else. And so, when Paul's sitting in prison, he's ministering to his jailers. And when we're at work... We need to be ministering to our boss and ministering to our neighbors and we need to be salt and light because this world so desperately needs the Lord. You know what? You're also a parent for Jesus. You're a parent for Jesus. Those are his kids in your house. He's letting you raise his kids. You better do a good job. Amen? If someone watches my kids and they mess it up, they're going to answer to me and I'm, you know. But man, imagine messing up God's kids. We better take good care of them, amen? And he says here, for you Gentiles. Why again was he in prison? Because of his efforts to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul's imprisonment that we could look at as a bummer. Paul could say, man, I was out there planting churches. People were getting saved. I was causing riots and revivals and all kinds of, now I'm sitting in jail, Lord. How could this be you? Well, you know what? I think he had to be in prison so he'd stop long enough to write the Bible. He wrote four letters while he was in prison, right? We're still getting blessed today because Paul went to prison. And too often we think, man, it's a bummer. It's, man, how could this possibly be happening? And God said, it's all part of my divine plan. May we learn to trust God no matter what the circumstances. May we learn to say, Lord, I trust you no matter what. If indeed, verse 2, you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. If, the word if there in the Greek doesn't apply doubt. He's saying, but if, as, as if I presume. I presume that you've heard of the dispensation of grace. The message that's been given to me by God for you, for you Gentiles. To let you know that that center wall has been torn down. That you can approach the throne of grace. Now how many of you, I'm going to take a moment to, something I don't normally do a lot of, but get a little theological with you. How many of you have ever heard of dispensations? Okay? How many of you ever heard of it and have no idea what that means? Well hopefully you'll have a better idea. I'm going to just take a moment. I want to talk to you. The word dispensation here just means strategy or a part of God's plan. And God deals with man according to his plans, according to now what, we're, we're in, what is called now the dispensation of grace. Now it's interesting, people will always put God on trial. You talk to people and say, well what kind of God is it that I was born a sinner and I didn't have a choice? You know, I was born a sinner, so I was forced to sin, and then I get judged for my sin. You ever talk to anybody like that? I have. And they'll say, if I was born sinless and then I sinned, that would be different. Well, guess what? 
The first dispensation was called the dispensation of innocence, and it was Adam and Eve. And they were born without sin. They were born without having to work. They were born without pain, without sorrow, without suffering, without death, without any problems. And for those of you who say, well, if, if God just allowed everything, to, if I was problem free in my life and there was no sin, I would do, no you wouldn't. The dispensation of innocence proves it. How did it work out with Adam and Eve? There was one thing they couldn't do. One. There was not 900 laws. One. Don't eat of that tree. That's it. Everything else, all yours. Go for it. Don't touch that tree. Not 500 rules. One. That's what cracks me up about religions today that say, I have 500 rules I must keep. I go, I know you're blowing it. I know you're blowing it. There was one in the garden, and they were sinless, and you're not. And they blew it, so I know you're blowing it. So the first dispensation was the dispensation of innocence. And when did that stop? Well, when Adam and Eve sinned. Well, the second dispensation, period of time, was the dispensation of, it's called, and again, I don't want to get too theological because I don't typically do this, but I thought some of you might be blessed. The dispensation of conscience. This lasted 1,650 years from the fall of man in the garden till the flood, where basically God allowed man to operate using his own conscience. Now, there are people today that would say that. If God would just let me to have the freedom to operate based on what I think is best, everything would be just fine. If God didn't give me a bunch of rules to follow and just let me follow my own path, how did that work out? Not too good. What happened was everybody was serving themselves. Sexual immorality was running rampant and God had to raise up a man by the name of Noah, Noah to build an ark. And only eight people lived and he wiped everybody else out because they were operating under their own conscience the dispensation of innocence didn't work the dispensations of con dispensation of conscience didn't work next time someone tries to tell you that well if, if god would just let us operate in our own con let me tell you about a time when that happened you had to bring wa water out of the sky and wipe everybody out and start over because of their conscience what followed after that was what is called the dispensation of government it lasted about 425 years from the flood until the time of the P tower of babel during this time, God established the first government based upon capital punishment, and man decided to add to God's government. Does that sound familiar? Add to God's government, and they built the Tower of Babel, and guess what happened? It ended in disaster. God had to change their languages and send confusion and send them in all different directions. So the dispensation of government. So when we think, if I just, we just had the perfect government, everything would be great. If we just had the perfect, all the right people in office, everything would be wonderful. Well, the dispensation of government didn't work out too well. Then came the dispensation of promise. This lasted from Abraham until Exodus, about 430 years. If God just gave me a promise for my life and told me things and just gave me something to hold on to, that would be enough. Did Abraham have a few promises? I'm going to make your descendants like the sand of the seashore. Like the stars in the sky, Abraham. I'm going to bless you. You're going to be the father of my people. Some people say, I don't need God. I just need a vision for my life. Well, Abraham had one. What happened? His descendants ended up in Egypt making bricks. 
the dispensation of promise didn't work out too well either. Then we come to the dispensation of the law. This lasted about 1,500 years from Exodus until the cross of Calvary. Those who think if we just had some rules and regulations that I could follow, I'd be okay. And there are still those that think they just need the right how-to book. If I just had the right how-to book, how to live life, I could follow that and everything would be wonderful. I'm looking for the latest, next, newest trend to lead my life. And if I could just follow that, I'll be okay. How did the, how did the dispensation of the law work out? They broke it before he got down the mountain with it. I'll be right back. He goes up and he comes down. They're having a drunken orgy worshiping a golden idol, a golden calf. I'm amazed it lasted 1,500 years. It's amazing to me. Well, guess what? Praise God that all of that came to end at the cross. And now we are under the dispensation of grace. And you know what? This is the only one that can work because we can't mess it up. It has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Him. Amen? So we're no longer under the dispensation of innocence, of conscience, of government, of promise, of law, but we're under the dispensation of grace. We're, under the, we're living in the church age, also known as the age of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's not me being perfect. It's not me being innocent. It's not me living by my conscience. It's not raising up the perfect government. It's not following the perfect promise. It's not keeping the law in a perfect way. But it's walking in the grace of Almighty God. In the dispensation of grace, God says, I love you. I died for your sin. I rose again. Just confess me as your Savior and you'll be saved. Don't you love the dispensation of grace? Aren't you glad you're living now? We live in the dispensation of grace. We're the most blessed of all people. We have the completed revelation of God's word in our hand. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We're the closest to the return of our Savior. And we're living in the dispensation of grace. Praise God. Now there are two more dispensations. I don't have time to go into them. But one is the dispensation of the tribulation. As a pastor, and we talked about it when we were going through Corinthians and other places in the word. I absolutely am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt we won't be here for the tribulation. Snatch us away. He did not appoint us to wrath. And so we're going to be in heaven. And for seven years, there'll be that tribulation time. And after that, the dispensation of righteousness when we will rule and reign with the Lord for a thousand years on earth. The lion will be laying down with the lamb and we'll see what the world would be like with God in charge. Can't wait. Amen? Can't wait. Looking forward to that. These dispensations are getting better, but the one in the middle, the tribulation, you don't want to be here for that. You need to pray for those who will be. But he says here, indeed you have heard of the dispensation of grace. The age of grace. We're living in it. Of God, which was given to me for you. Not given to Paul only for his private use, but for the sake of sharing it with others. God had showed the grace of God to Paul toward the Gentiles that he might go out and share it with everyone else. Guys, we're under the gospel of grace. We're under the dispensation of grace. And we need to reach out to others with that same message. We don't need to hide our light under a bushel. You know, Christmas is coming up. That's Jesus' birthday, by the way, if you've forgotten. 
Not Santa Claus's birthday. Or, right? It's Jesus' birthday. And you know what? It's a great opportunity to share your faith. It's a great opportunity to get dead up to your eyeballs. It's also a great opportunity to share your faith. And it ought to be more focused on that than anything else. It's great to get together with your family. It's great to exchange gifts. But it's Jesus' birthday, not ours. Amen? Amen? And we ought to take this as an opportunity to share with people the love and the grace and the mercy of God. God doesn't reveal truth to us or give us gifts that we might keep it to ourselves, but that we might share it with others. So the mystery of grace, part one was the age of grace. We're in it. And now we're going to look at the unity in grace. Look at verse three. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already. The word mystery there is in Greek is a once hidden truth now revealed. It's not a mystery, ooh, you know. You know, it's not a mystery like that. Not this thing, oh, we got to get clues. That's not what it's talking about. It's a mystery of something that was once hidden that's now been revealed. Now, have you ever wondered why God would hide things? Why didn't he just give the whole thing at the very beginning? Why would he hold back? We'll talk about that more as we move on through the text. But there's a very clear reason in my mind for exactly why he did it. And of course there's a reason because he did it and he's God and he knows better than we do. Amen? Amen. But it says here, in God, we see that in God's perfect timing, in his appropriate timing, he revealed the truth, the truth of the mystery. Now what mystery is he talking about here? The mystery he's talking about, it says in Isaiah, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. You know what? That the gospel was not just for the Jews, but was for the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit, Jesus said this, has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. What's the mystery? The mystery is that the gospel is available to all men. It's not a message just for the Jews. It's a message for all men. Again, all true revelation must be backed up with Scripture. Often people say, I've got a new mystery from God. Give me a verse. Amen? I've got this new revelation. Show me a verse to back it up. I had this wild experience. You got a verse in the Bible for that? No, then I don't believe you. I think people get offended when I tell them that, but I'll take God's word over your experience every time. Sorry. Amen? Do our experiences lie to us sometimes? I had this burning in my bosom. It's a chili dog. You know what I mean? Get over it. I had this burning in my bosom that proves that the Book of Mormon is true. No, it's a chili dog. It's, you know, it's too many jalapeno peppers. That doesn't mean that that's God. We've got to check everything against the Word of God. Amen? Amen? The mystery was that the gospel was available to all men. All true revelation, all true prophecy must be both consistent with and backed up by Scripture. And today you and I are so blessed that we've got the completed revelation in our hand. I love the fact that it's right here. All of it. I've heard it said before that God was saying, man, you pastors, you know, why does it take you so long to study? All you got is one book. You think you can figure it out by now? Why you got to go to college for six years? to get a, You only got one book to study. Because this isn't Moby Dick, this is the living, breathing Word of God, amen? And it's, you know, we can study it the rest of our lives and we won't even begin to scratch the surface. Now it says here, by which, verse 4, 
When you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has, been, has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. This mystery, this truth written about by the Apostle Paul, this mystery of Christ, His person, His office, His grace, His work, what He came to do to accomplish, was something that was not foreseen completely by the Old Testament prophets. Again, many of them were looking for a conquering Messiah, not a suffering one. But how can you read Isaiah 53 and not read the cross into that? How can you look at Psalm 22 and not see Jesus hanging on the cross? How can you look at Old Testament sacrificial system and not see it clearly pointing to our Savior, yet they didn't fully grasp it? It was still hidden to them. But to you and I, it's wide open. If you come on Wednesday night, every chapter we see Jesus. Amen? Amen. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, John, doesn't matter where it is, you see Jesus in every chapter. Because it's all a picture of the Messiah that was to come. It says here, the sons of men. It was not known to the sons of men. The previous generations, men in general, did not fully grasp this mystery that was hidden. I'll tell you why it was hidden in a moment. Look at verse 6. That the Gentiles, here's the mystery, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. This was a mystery prior to mainly Paul's ministry. Paul's ministry was focused on the Gentiles, making sure they knew that they too could draw near to Almighty God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That was Paul's main focus and ministry. That the Jews and Gentiles were fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of the same promise, that they came to God the same way. Now the Jews in the early days, man, they didn't like that at all. Wait a minute. You've got to become like us, and then you can come to the Lord. And that's a danger in the church today. Trying to tell people they've got to become like us before they can come to the Lord. No, they don't. Amen? You come just as you are to the Lord. You don't need to take a, a shower before you get into the bath. You don't need, oh, I've got to clean myself up before I can come to God. You know what? You'll never be clean enough. You need to come right now. Amen? And you need to come to Him just the way you are. And the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews had this, well, you need to be circumcised. You've got to keep the law. You've got to follow after our, our truth, our laws, our ways. And then you can, once you become a Jew and you're in good standing as a Jewish proselyte, then maybe you'll be ready to become a Christian. Well, this mystery is being wiped out by Paul, who was the Jew of all Jews. What was Paul doing before he got saved? Killing Christians. He was persecuting Christians, and he was one of the Sanhedrin. He was one of the most elevated of all the Jews, going after Christians. And now here he is preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Don't you love what God does in the life of people? Amen? The guy that was the most feared of all Christians, by, by the Christians became one of the most mighty Christians, witnessing to the very people that he once called dogs. Gentile dogs. The uncircumcised. And now he's reaching out to them in love. Can you imagine what this message must have been like for the Gentiles to hear this? I want you to know you can come to God in the same way the Jews do. Really? 
You don't, that wall's been torn down. You don't have to be on the outside anymore trying to catch a glimpse of what's being said. You can come near yourself. Praise the Lord. That's the message that Paul was delivering to the Gentiles. Had always been on the outside looking in. And again, now they could draw near. Jesus did away with all the rituals and the man-made relationships available and made the relationship available to all men. Salvation brings the gospel, not rules, not rites, not rituals. So we have unity in grace. The Jews and the Gentiles are saved the same way. Men and women are saved the same way. No matter what your background, rich or poor, saved the same way. It's the same God, the same gospel, the same truth, the same salvation, no matter who you are. And that's the mystery of grace because they had not fully grasped it prior to this time. Let's move on now to the the gift of grace, or the fruits of grace, if you will. It says, of which, verse 7, I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. Paul was a minister not according to his good works, not according to his natural abilities, not according to his great knowledge, but by God's grace. Everybody that's doing anything for God is doing it by God's grace. Nobody is doing it because God just couldn't live without them. You know, that guy's really talented and gifted. And man, if that guy got saved, can you imagine? You ever said that? I have. Have you ever said that? Boy, if so-and-so got saved, wow! Yeah, God really needs him. What's God going to do without him? Whoa, man. You know, right? It's all grace that any good works take place. It's all grace that any of us has any gifting and God is, again, doing a work through us. It's grace. And Paul's very clear to say, Paul could have said, I was the most educated, you know, set of Gamaliel's feet, you know what I'm talking about, right? And, you know, I, I was right, I was on the Sanhedrin and, you know, you guys got nothing on me. I'm more educated than all of you combined. He didn't do any of that. He said, I'm a minister by God's grace. And it was really God's grace with Paul. Saul of Tarsus, killing Christians, holding the coats while they stoned Stephen, becomes a guy writing books of the Bible. Amazing. But you know what? Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And he who has been forgiven much, loves much. And it says, in the rest of this, it gives us a clue, because it says, the effective working of His power. The grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. The word working there is energia, where you get the word for energy. The word there for power, I'll give you one guess. Dunamis, where you get the word dynamite and dynamic. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so, what is it that's working in Paul? It's the power of God through the person of the Holy Spirit who by His grace chose to use this man. Who should be glorified in that? God alone. You've heard me use the analogy before, and there's a few new people, so I'll use it again. Why do I repeat myself? Because you forget stuff. Paul repeats himself. The Word of God repeats himself. But you know, many years ago, I was visiting my parents from Southern California. I had the worst toothache of my life. It was just beyond toothache. And it was Thanksgiving Day. Wrong day to get a toothache. And I have a high threshold for pain, so I'm laying in the floor just, ah, right? And I got to the point where I don't care what it costs. 
So I'm calling every dentist in the phone book you know, on Thanksgiving Day. Yeah. Finally, there's an emergency number. It rings in a guy's house. I can't believe he picked up the phone. And he said, I, I said, I'm in so much pain. And he said, you know what? Come down to my office. I'm going to have to charge you double. I'm like, I'll give you my car. You know, I, I don't care. I'll, t- I'll send your, you and your wife to Hawaii for a week. Just get my tooth fixed. So I go down to his office, and I sit in his chair. He didn't have anybody to assist him. And the first thing he did is he gave me a shot of no... Oh. And then he, he ended up having to pull the tooth. It was bad news. But the point I'm making is that I, when he was done, I didn't grab the drill and go, Oh, thank you, drill. You're such a wonderful drill. What would I do without you, drill? Oh, thank you, Novocaine syringe. That'd be the stupidest thing ever. Why? Because it was the dentist who brought the relief. Amen? Amen. Well, we're simply tools in the hands of the master. And when we receive glory, it's like somebody praising the drill bit. Somebody glorifying the, you know, the, the syringe that carries the Novocaine. That's all we are. We should not be touching the glory. We're tools in the hands of the master. He alone should be glorified and praised and lifted up. And the point Paul is making is, look, it's by His grace, the working of His power, that God is doing anything good in my life. Verse 8. To me, who am less than the least of the saints. You know what I love about Paul? The more Paul walked with God, the more humble he became. Early in Paul's life, he referred to himself as the least of the apostles. Later he called himself, in this case, the least of the saints. And later he's going to call himself the chief of sinners. The more he came to know God, the more desperately he saw his need for God. The more he saw how short he fell of God's grace. And how much he, of his his love and his mercy and his perfection. And how much he needed the Lord. And you know what, that's a sign of somebody that God can use. Paul doesn't say here, to me, who am the chief church planter of the entire world. Did he, could he have said that? Is that true? Yeah. It's true. Did he say, I'm the one who led more people to Christ than anybody who's ever lived? Could have maybe said that. It probably was true. You know, I'm the spiritual father of Timothy, spiritual father of Bar- you know, all these guys, you know, and they're planting churches, and really comes back to me. I'm a really good guy. I'm a good mentor, you know, whatever, right? Paul didn't do any of that. What does he say instead? Chief, I'm the least of the saints. Humility. This is somebody who gets it. Paul's history is he'd been a persecutor of the early church. Now he's an instrument of God, used by God to proclaim the good news. And the closer he got to the Lord, the more he was aware of his desperate need for Him. And the closer that you and I walk to the Lord, the more we ought to walk in humility, not arrogance. Amen? The more we ought to walk in desperation for Him. You know, we hate arrogance when we see it in other people, don't we? You see it in somebody else, you go, that guy's arrogant, right? We ought to have a mirror up in front of us so when we do it, we, get, we feel just as bad, amen? He says here, Great, to me who am less than the least of the saints, the grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So by God's grace, he was allowed to go out and preach. What did he preach? The unsearchable riches of Christ. He didn't preach the seven steps to financial freedom. He didn't, 
He didn't preach three ways to overcome your anger. He didn't preach how to be more happy in life. He didn't have philosophical or psychological or theological seminary. Or, or, you know, he didn't have seminars. What did he preach? Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. We can preach the unsearchable riches of Christ for 24 hours a day for the next million years and we would barely scratch the surface. Why do we want to teach anything else? Why do we want to look at anything else but the, again, the unsearchable riches of Christ? The, press, the message of Paul's ministry was Christ and Christ alone. The riches of Christ are without end. They're beyond comprehension and he would not teach anything else. Verse 9, And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ. The fellowship of the mystery had been hidden. Now why would God hide it? Why would He hide the fact that the wall is going to come down? Why would He hide the fact that Jews and Gentiles alike will be able to approach Him? You know, it's interesting as we're going to continue to read on. I believe there's a very clear reason why. This truth was hidden in God and was now revealed in Christ. Jesus is the truth. And He, was, he again has made all things. And through Him we find our hope. And we find the reason for living. And it says there, the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Do you know that Jesus Christ is the Creator? Amen. People try to make Him the creation. He's not the creation. Nor was He ever created. He is the Creator. Amen? Amen? And it says here He's the Creator. And then it says in verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Now this blows me away. This says that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known by the church to the principalities and powers in high places. Who are the principalities and powers in high places? Who are they? The angels and, and the demons. So who's educating the angels about the manifold wisdom of God. The church. That's what this verse says. That means the angels are paying attention. And that means that God is using us to educate them. You know what? Angels are heavenly beings, but angels are not omnipresent, and they're not omniscient. They don't know everything. But guess who else is getting educated? Satan. Do you know that Satan, I believe, why would the Lord hide this truth? Because Satan does know what the Bible says, but he doesn't fully grasp it. And it was hidden from him. That's why he thought at the cross of Christ he had won a great victory when all he had done is bring about redemption for every sinner who ever lived. It was hidden from the enemy. And now he knows. Too late. Amen? <laughs> So Satan knows. And what's interesting is that means that God didn't just save us, but this wisdom, this manifold wisdom that comes through the body of Christ is now a testimony to all of mankind and to everything outside of humanity. It's incredible to me. That means God's using us to impart wisdom to the angels. Wow. That blows my mind. How about you? Part of me thinks, maybe the angels aren't that smart after all, if I've got more wisdom that they can learn from. But no, the point is that they're watching, and we know that they are, because the Bible says that when one person comes to know Christ, what happens? 
all the angels in heaven do what? They rejoice. They throw a party up in heaven. So they're attentive to what God is doing here and God is doing through us. And when you think about it, that they're watching us, makes you a little conscious about what you're doing. Amen? First Peter says, the angels are studying us, no doubt that God would reside in people like us. First Corinthians says, we are made a spectacle unto the world and unto the angels. So while Satan knows the scriptures, again, there was a truth that was hidden to him. Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The, it had been hidden, there was an eternal purpose, and the supreme purpose of the church is to glorify God and to point mankind to the only available bridge in him. It says in Ephesians 1, in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Everything will be gathered together in Christ. You know that Jesus will be the judge of every man. Did you know that? He will be. Buddha bowing to Jesus. Muhammad bowing to Jesus. The Dalai Lama bowing to Jesus. And all of it is in, in Him and in Him alone. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. Him alone. And it's all wrapped up in Jesus. And He is either your Savior or He's going to be your judge. Choose one. Amen? What are you going to do with Jesus? That's what really matters. In Christ, the ministry is in Christ. Wisdom comes from the knowledge of Christ. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in God. So he's saying that the, the fruit of this grace is one, God gives us the opportunity to be in ministry. He then gives us the opportunity to impart his wisdom to others. And now in this final verse of this section, he talks about having boldness and access with confidence in him. You know what, we have boldness to speak for Him, but that boldness can only come through His grace. The boldness doesn't come because you just determine, I'm going to be more bold. It happens when we, when we die to ourselves and say, Lord, help. Amen? It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And then we have access with confidence. You know what's great? I know that I can come before Almighty God and speak directly to Him. I know it. I can do it right now. What a blessing. Amen? And I have that access with confidence. Why? Because of the work of the cross. Because of this mystery that the wall has been torn down and I can enter into the presence of Almighty God. It's not self-confidence, but it's confidence in Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you were brought from afar off and have been brought near by the blood. It says in Ephesians 2. We're almost done, but I want to finish up. All who've been born again have full-time access to the Creator. You know, it's incredible to me. People will travel hundreds if not thousands of miles to go to Mecca to sit on a towel and, and bow down to a rock. That's a fact. People will travel great distances to watch the Pope drive by. Isn't that true? Wait all day, got my spot, and he goes by and you wave at him. Okay, that was thrilling. Now let me, let me say this. We don't have to go anywhere and we can talk to Almighty God. I don't have to fly anywhere. I don't have to book any plane tickets. I don't have to sit outside in the rain and wait for a good spot and hope that when the Lord drives by, he might, I might catch a glimpse of Him. He's right there ready and willing and waiting for me to come near and say, Lord, I just want to spend an hour in prayer with you. 
I want to spend a half an hour just worshiping at your feet. And he's right there saying, oh, my son, come. Come near to me. Come sit at my feet. Come, to, come sit in my lap. Let me put my arm around you, son. Let me put my arm around you, daughter. Let me hug you close to my bosom. Let me share my love with you. That's the God we serve. Amen? Amen. It's incredible. He's not a faraway God. Anywhere, anytime, we can come near to Him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart in my tribulations for you, which is your glory. You know what else comes, the fruit of grace? is the ability to endure suffering. When you understand what God has done for you and who you are in Him, you can endure anything. I see these brothers of Gospel for Asia, they've been beaten out sharing the Jesus film, and they come in and they're smiling. It was great! People got saved. Now we got beaten up, and they tore up our screen and destroyed our equipment, but, but people got saved! Bill and I are like, are we saved? <laughs> and they're just smiling, telling us the story. Yeah, they held us down and beat us with sticks and... We're all like, my neighbor, you know, won't talk to me anymore. (laughs) Better just get over that already. Let's finish up with Paul's prayer. I know I'm going over a little bit, but where you guys got to go? That's what I thought. You'll be late for the football game. We can let that go by. All right. Niners are going to lose anyway. All right. So lastly, let's look quickly. His prayer. I want you to see this because it's so key. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian believers in light of God's grace. He says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So first thing that we do in prayer is we must identify who we're praying to. Who we pray to. So he prays to who? To the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. From whom the whole family in heaven in heaven and earth is named. We see again that he gets... He, For this reason, I bow to my knees. This is a position of intense prayer. The Jews didn't get on their knees to pray. They stand. You go to Jerusalem with us, you're going to see they still do. They stand by the wall and they they pray. He's on his knees. This shows intensity. This shows sincerity of his prayer. Then he focuses the prayer on God the Father. Because again, prayer can only be as powerful as the one who it's addressed to. And then it says there, from the whole family in heaven on earth is named. Here again we see the unity of all believers because we're all His children. The whole family of God, we're all united in Christ and we are all His children. John 1 says, but as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in His name. Now, let's finish up by looking at what Paul prays for. And I want us to learn from this. What does Paul pray for? Paul, man of God. Used mightily by God. What does he pray for? Lord, give me a new Cadillac. That's not what it says. Look at verse 16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. He prayed that through the riches of his glory, not to bless them physically, but to bless them spiritually. Man, would our prayer life change if we started focusing on our spiritual walk instead of our physical needs? Is it okay to pray for physical needs? Yes. But that should be way down on the list. May we start by praying for spiritual discernment and wisdom and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul's praying for these precious Ephesian believers, and he doesn't pray, Lord, give them stuff. Lord, make them more comfortable. Lord, take them out of the trials. Lord, get me out of jail. He says, Lord, 
May they know the riches of your grace. Lord, pour out the truth of your Spirit upon them. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. Paul's desire for these saints was that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith, that they would be rooted and grounded in love. You know what? There's nothing I want more for my four children than for them to love Jesus. I don't care. Nothing comes close. Nothing. And you know what? I'm an imperfect dad. Think how much more God wants that for us. That we would just love Him. And we would love His Son. Empowered by the Spirit. That's the prayer that Paul prays. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height. He's speaking of His love. When we've been strengthened in the inner man, when we've been rooted and grounded in love, when we've been adopted into His family, then we can begin to comprehend the depth of His love. You know what's interesting? This seems like it would be impossible to understand the depth of His love. But when we want to understand it, we need only go one place, and that's to the cross. How much does He love you? He'd rather die than live without you. And it's interesting. There's four points on the cross, and there's four ways of looking at His love. God's love is wide enough that everybody can be saved. His love is long enough that it will last throughout eternity. His love is deep enough that it can reach the worst sinner. And His love is high enough that it's going to take us to heaven. May we understand and grasp the, the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. This seems impossible. How can we know the love of Christ that surpasses human knowledge? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's, his prayer is not anything physical, but Lord, pour out your Spirit upon them till it flows out of them. Lord, Pour out your love upon them so they love you above all else and they grasp who you are beyond measure. Lord, that's my prayer for them. Nothing physical, not deliverance from trials, but Lord, a greater understanding of God. Boy, couldn't we pray more like that? You know what? Everything else take care of itself. Then you'll, get, you'll have your neighbor not talk to you and you'll come in and say, my neighbor's not talking to me. You won't be bummed out. Okay, Lord, it's okay. Because God, you're faithful and you're in control. The fullness comes to the action of being filled with the Holy Spirit to overflowing. They pray, he prayed they would know the love of Jesus. They'd be rooted and grounded in His Word. That they'd be able to comprehend the width and the length and the height and the depth of His love. They would be filled with all the fullness of God. A seemingly impossible request. Look at the next verse. We'll finish with these two verses. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So what's the context of this verse? It's not asking for stuff, is it? Now him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think, he's asking that they would know the depth of his love, the width of his love, the length of his love, the height of his love. They would be rooted in his love. They would understand his grace. That they would, again, know the fullness of God. And then he says to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. He's saying God can do that. It's beyond our imagination that we'd know the fullness of God's love, but to Him who is able. Amen? So next time you quote that verse, when you're trying to get God to give you some stuff, remember where, you're at, where it is in the Bible. Amen? Say, Lord, you can do it, but what I want you to do is transform my heart, not give me stuff. To Him be glory. It says, according to the power that works in us, the power of the Holy Spirit, to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all the generations forever and ever Amen. May we learn from both the 
the, the, the content and the intensity of Paul's prayer. Paul's praying with intensity. You want to start praying for your loved ones? You know what? Praying for their grades? Okay. Pray for their walk. Pray for their intimacy with God. Pray that they would know the fullness of God's love. Amen? So may we understand this mystery of grace. We're living in an age of grace. That we've been unified in the grace of God. That all the gifts we have come by the grace of God. And may we understand and pray enlightened by the grace of God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your love and your grace. Lord, I do pray for each of us, Lord. I pray Paul's prayer. Lord, that we would know the fullness of your grace. The fullness of your love. The height and the depth and the length and the width of your incredible love for us. That we would be rooted in your love, Lord. Lord, I thank you that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And Lord, I know that it, it comes when there's less of us and more of you that we can know that fullness of your Spirit. So Lord, we, we come humbly before you. May our prayer lives change. May our prayer lives may be more focused on that which is eternal than that which is temporal. Father, may we desire to be transformed spiritually before we're delivered physically. Lord, may you use the difficulties of life to reach into our hearts and transform us more into your image. We love you, we praise you, we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Stand and close the worship song. Thank <laughs> you.